Hey, good morning. Wow, that was a pretty hearty good morning. For that's unusual for you guys. Um, you, uh, this morning, I don't know if you felt this way, but I, I feel like watching the crowd, like like watching you guys come in this morning, like it just felt like a slow morning, didn't it? Like you're like, oh, is it really 9:30 already or whatever? Do, you, do you, anybody else besides me? Yeah. But I, but I was surprised to hear that kind of enthusiastic good morning. So, you know, if you're just joining us, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are studying through the Gospel of John, which is in the New Testament, which is like the last third of your Bibles. The, uh, the, the first books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So if you're new to the Bible, you can kind of just flip through and you should find it. We're in John chapter 12 this morning, and we're finishing up John chapter 12. You know, last week, what we looked at was that... Um, that, that the nation of Israel and all the people that knew about who Jesus, they all had their preconceived notion of, of what their biggest problems were. They had their pre- preconceived notion of, of what kind of savior they needed. And so everybody was, was like praising Jesus. And, and um, when he came into Jerusalem on what, what the church often refers to as Palm Sunday, you know, and the, the problem was, though, is that, and what Jesus does in the passage that we saw last week is that when people wanted to come see him, he, he actually started talking about something completely different. He started talking about that the, the kind of savior that they need is the kind of savior that would be buried in the ground like a seed and spring forth in this great harvest. He's the kind of savior that, that would, would need to be lifted up from the earth and crucified. And it, none of it, like, computed with them because they were so stuck in their like, vision of what they needed and wanted from Jesus that, that they had kind of no clue what was going on. You know, and what we're going to see today and what we saw last week is that the, all the people that believe, and we're going to see some people that believe here, is that they had this imperfect belief about who Jesus was. They, they were excited about him as a person, but they didn't really understand the very central thing that he came to do. And, and that, that very central thing that he came to do was to offer himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us and under the judgment of God so that we could all walk in forgiveness and freedom. And they, nobody got that. Nobody understood that. And, and uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about this, but it's not like their like, imperfect belief meant nothing. It, me- it meant something. Like, there's kind of like two groups of people. There's the people that have all these like misunderstandings about who Jesus is. And then there's the, the like rulers of Israel who want to see Jesus killed. It's better be in that first group. Because um, Jesus wins in the end. Sorry, spoiler alert. Jesus wins in the end. But so it's better to be in this first group of, of like imperfect or confused or even like misunderstood faith. But it's important not to stay there. You know, so if you're here this morning, um, and you, regardless of where you are in your journey and following the Lord, or even discovering who He is in your journey of faith, like I'm glad you're here. And for some of you, like if you've never recognized who Jesus is, if you've never understood the significance of that substitutionary sacrifice that He accomplished for you on the cross, like I hope that you come to an understanding of that this morning, and and you come to a place of belief. Where you, kind of, where you transfer out of darkness into God's marvelous light and the life that he has in Jesus Christ. But for all the rest of us that are here this morning who at least at some level acknowledge faith in Christ, I want to submit to you that we're, we're probably not all that different from the people that, that are still trying to figure it out. Let me submit this to you. and I'm just going to read you this quote from a pastor. He's up, 
he, I think he's still up in Tacoma. His name's Jeff Vanderstelt. And I, I, I really think what he says is true here. He says this, I'm an unbeliever, so are you. He goes on. I grew up thinking that people fell into two categories. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. You either believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, or you don't. Now, after more than 25 years as a pastor, I see that every one of us is an unbeliever, including me, at least in some areas of our lives. Don't misunderstand me. I do not believe that there are some, I do believe that there are some who are regenerate children of God and others who are not yet. There are those who have been given new life through faith in Jesus. They have become new creations and have been given fresh starts because of their faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. And I believe that there are others who are still dead in their sins and not yet truly alive in Christ. When I say we are all unbelievers, I mean that we still have places in our lives where we don't believe God. There are spaces where we don't trust his word and don't believe that what he accomplished in Jesus Christ is enough to deal with our past or what we are facing in this moment or the next. We don't believe his word is true or his work is sufficient. We don't believe we are unbelievers. Now think about that for a moment. That, and I think he's right. In my experience, I've probably, I guess I've been a pastor about as long as he had, uh, as long as he has. I think we're at all of us at some point in, in life have imperfect belief or misunderstood belief or incomplete belief. And what the Lord wants to do is like keep pressing into us so that more and more of our areas are transformed by faith in Jesus Christ. So I think what we're going to see here in our text this morning is there's a whole group of people that are on that same journey with us. And, and uh, what I want us to see is that, it, and want us to apply is that, that we would just let the truth of the gospel press deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts this morning. You know, our text is going to break out in three ways. The first is, is uh, this is a pretty, pretty tricky uh, outline. Check this out. There's, there's two paths, there's two glories, and it's too important. Do you see that? The, the two thing. After being red marked on my papers all growing up, like I feel good to be able to do this. And <laughs> you English teachers, like tough, right? He's, Jesus is going to talk to us that there's two paths that we can choose to walk as we're, uh, we're on this journey of faith. There's two glories we can seek. And this is all too important for us to neglect this morning. So please stand with me. I'm going to start reading. I'm actually going to start reading at verse 32 this morning, because, and well, you'll see why in just a minute. And then um, I'll pray, and then we'll get into the study of our text. This is Jesus speaking in verse 32. And it's his word to us for his, as his church. He says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ was to remain forever. And how can you say, The Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and, he's, and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed a report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal him. 
heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for your word and how it gives life to us and how it points us to, to you and how it reveals who you are and who the Father is to us. And Father, I just ask and um, this morning, in the midst of me feeling a little bit out of sync here, that, that your spirit would work to speak to us, that he'd empower me to be able to speak, he'd open our hearts to hear, so that we could walk in the light, be transformed by the light, and experience the life that comes only from you. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the reason why I started reading in verse 32 is because... Um, because verse 35, where we're technically starting this morning, is actually an answer to the question that's raised in verse 34. Because if you look back up in verse 32, Jesus said, you know, when the Son of Man is lifted up, or, or like, how does it say it? And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he's speaking about his crucifixion. And it seems like everybody in the audience understood that because they come back with this question in verse 34. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So what's going on there is this question. And they're like, okay, we understand that you're saying that you, this one that we believe is our Messiah and our King and the fulfillment of all the prophecies, have to be lifted up and killed. But that doesn't jive with everything we've always learned in synagogue or everything we've always learned in church. Because we've always learned, we've always learned out of the law that the, that the Son of Man is to remain forever. So how is it that you talk about the, the Messiah and the hope of this world being lifted up and killed? And when, when they ask the question, who is this son of man, it's not a question of identity because they, everybody knows that Jesus is talking about himself. Whether it's a question of clarity. Who is this son of man? What kind of like son of man is it? What kind of king is it that comes just to die and just to be li lifted up? It makes no sense into our paradigm because we know. We've been taught from the Bible. We grew up in church. We, we set our memory verses. We got our badges. Right? We know what the law says, but Jesus, you're, what you're saying doesn't quite jive with what we know. Who is this son of man that must be lifted up? And look at Jesus' response. Jesus therefore said to them, verse 35, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. So Jesus doesn't even directly answer their question because he knows like the events that are about to unfold. And this, we're already in the week in which Jesus is crucified here in the book of John. He knows the events that are about to unfold are going to explain everything. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be like, have this false, like, like make-up trial by the leaders of Israel. He's going to be sentenced by the Romans, and he's going to be lifted up on a, on a cross and crucified, and he's going to raise again from the dead, and he's going to draw men to himself. Jesus knows the events that are about to unfold, and, and he also knows that there's no way that they can understand who he truly is unless they make sense of that, unless they make sense of all these events that are around the crucifixion. That's why he keeps bringing them back to it. 
But here he says this, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. What he's saying is, hang with me, people. Keep walking with me. Keep looking at me. I am the light of the world. This has all been developed through the book of John. In fact, he defines this walking while you have the light as believe in the light in verse, 30, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light. Hang with me. Keep believing, even though you don't completely understand so that you may become sons of light. Because in a few days, it's all going to come together. And when you see me like buried in the ground and raised from the dead, that's when you have to decide. And when you see all of that and place your faith in me, you will become sons of light. Your identity will be changed. You'll, be, you'll move from darkness to light, and you'll be new people. But hang with me. Walk while you have the light. Keep believing while you have the light so that you may become sons of light. But he says this in here, too. Do that so that the darkness may not overtake you. Do it so the darkness doesn't overtake you. In fact, it's the same word. It's really interesting. That word overtake is the same. The word kind of means in Hebrew the same as our word grasp. You don't want the darkness to be able to come up and grab hold of you. You don't want the darkness to come up and overpower you is how it's translated in John chapter 1. Because in John chapter 1, it says this about Jesus. Um, John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. I think I've got it on the screen. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And Jesus uses that same language here. Like, walk while you have the light, believe in the light, so that the darkness does not overtake you or overcome you, overpower you, or grab hold of you. What he's saying is, like, when I leave this world, it's going to feel like everything has gone dark. Keep on believing so that, so that it doesn't win. Because if you give up, he who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. If you give up and you stop believing you're going to be lost. There's these two paths. Keep on believing, keep on following Jesus, or not. And if you fall into that second category, the darkness grabs hold, and you don't know where you're going, you're lost. I think there's a bunch of application for us here this morning. You know, first of all, I think that there, wherever you are in your, in your like, walk of faith, you have a couple choices before you. You can actually keep pressing into who Jesus is and what the significance of him being lifted up from the earth and dying, that substitutionary death for you. Like keep pressing into that and figuring out what that says about you, what that says about him, and what that says about like your life going forward. Or you can just reject it. But just be warned. Jesus says if you reject it, you're lost, right? You don't know where you're going. And the darkness gets hold. But I think there's, there, there's something for us, uh, there's something for like all of us in here in the sense that all of us enter into those times where we doubt or where we're confused or we, we, it feels like everything's dark. And we have that choice. Do we keep pressing forward and trying to like follow Jesus or do we just go our own way? You know, if you're here and you're one of those people that are kind of struggling with your faith and you're in that midst of what like, people call de deconstructing your faith, 
If you're here, you probably know what I'm talking about. That's part of like where, where a lot of, especially young people are today, and it breaks my heart as I read like stuff written by people that have deconstructed. Because what happens is I see them, like they, there's a whole bunch of like, of like Christendom, I'll just call it that, that does need to get stripped away and deconstructed. It should be blown up and burned to the ground. But there's something, like there's, there are certain things that you better not let go of. One of them is what Jesus talks about here, that his death, his substitutionary death, where he offers himself up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't unmoor yourself from the reality of the death, burial, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus and all of the myriad of implications that that has for you in your journey. Because these people, they actually needed to have some things deconstructed. We have heard in the law that the Messiah is going to reign for, like, remain forever. That's partly true. He is remaining forever, but they kind of left off like the whole central point of all of human history. So their version of like faith and their version of like the Messiah needed to be blown up and torn down, and Jesus was going to do that for them. Don't give up on on the centrality of the cross and all of the implications that that means for you. And then don't give up on his word either. Because look what, this is a spoiler. Look ahead to verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on, that, on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. That's the second thing. Don't give up on the authority of God's word because what Jesus says is the word of God is going to, his word is going to judge on that last day. And his word, his commandment, isn't just a bunch of rules to spoil your fun. It is life, he says. So if you're here in that place of deconstruction, and I've, I've kind of gone through that in my own life uh, when I was younger, that's an okay place to be as long as you don't give up on the centrality of the cross and on the authority of Scripture. If you cling to those two things as you move through that journey, like I'm confident that the Spirit will bring you out on the other side with a, with a more pure faith. But there are countless authors out there, and I'm sure blog posts, and I'm sure, have, you know, what are those things called? Podcasts. Um, <laughs> I honestly did have a brain freeze there. That wasn't meant to be a joke. But thanks for making fun of me. So... I dish it out, I guess I should take it, right? So That are going to tell you, like, oh, you just need to throw away the Bible. Jesus is nothing but just, like, a nice social justice warrior or something. Like, none of that makes sense of the cross. If that was true, why did he die? And why did he raise again from the dead? And what does that mean for you? Like, don't give up on those things, because Jesus say, if you do, you don't know where you're going. And any author that leads you away from those things is leading you into darkness. Those are the two paths that we can choose to walk. Second thing is there's two glories. In verses 36 through 43, we read these already, but let me just go ahead and reread them. Actually, verse 36b. He says, These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. 
But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed a report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now what we find here is that there's this, there's this scene that what, what happens here is that Jesus ends, like Jesus departs from the scene. Like these are his last words in a sense. In verse 36, these things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. So Jesus goes off the stage. And now we kind of kick into this narrative thing where John is, is like, you know, it's the voiceover. You know, as all of us are sitting in dark after like the main character leaves the stage, there's this voiceover going and it tells us that no matter verse 37, no matter what Jesus did, all the signs that he did, all of the miracles that proved who he was, everything that was pointing towards him, all the fulfillment of scripture, all of it to totality together wasn't enough to cause them to believe. And then he says this, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's a quote from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 starts off with that sentence. In fact, it reads this way, Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. And I'll just, you could read the whole chapter, but I'm just going with this much for the sake of time. There's the line, verse 2 goes on. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief, griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what John's saying by quoting verse 1 of that is he's saying this whole plan of, of the servant of God, Jesus himself, coming and coming to save people like sheep who have gone astray, coming so that all of our cumulative total iniquity of the entire world would be laid upon him and he would experience the wrath of God for that in our place. It was actually being accomplished by their unbelief because his rejection, his betrayal, and his crucifixion was central to the plan. Now what John's not saying is that God looked ahead and saw what all the people were going to do when Jesus showed up the first time and Jesus wasn't quite persuasive enough to pull off like conversions of the people that he wanted to convert. And so he just like came up with plan B and figured out how to make it work and came up with this salvation plan. It's not what he's saying, even though our minds kind of want to go there because look what he says next. For this cause they could not believe. Do you see that in verse 39? For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, talking about God, and he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. 
But feel the weight of that for a minute, because if you're new to the Bible, like, welcome to the deep end, right? Because <laughs> you, you, you have this statement where God has blinded eyes, he has hardened hearts, lest they re, re, return so that they betray Jesus, so that he can be crucified, so that redemption can go to the whole world. But there's like some like logical, ethical, theological problems that that creates in our mind. Are you with me? Good. I'm leaving for two weeks. Randy. <laughs> uh, are you up next, Randy, or is it Jake? Jake has the answer all the questions. So. I just want to make, like, bring up four things to help us with that. I'm not going to be able to exhaustively like, address those issues. But first of all, where are these? And I get these from Don Carson. He's a theologian. But the first one is this, is that God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. We're seeing God sovereignly working, God sovereignly doing what he wants, God sovereignly accomplishes purposes. And within the scriptures, it's never pitted against human responsibility. In fact, what you see over and over and over again is that human responsibility and God's sovereignty like lay side by side. And somehow that all works out. And my brain is too small to figure it out. Theologians call that like the, the idea of compatibilism, this doctrine that humans are ultimately responsible and God is totally sovereign are both true. And we don't, we lack the ability to, to kind of synthesize those things. In fact, you see it right here in this text. I mean, I could show you in two weeks multiple scriptures. Verse 37, but though they had performed so many signs before, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Like John's implying like there's like this responsibility for their unbelief. And then you see down in verse, um, verse 43, one of the reasons, verse 43, for they loved the approval of man rather than the approval of God. Like our affections and our decisions and our hearts are like genuinely like kind of opposed to God and we love other things and, and we bear responsibility for that. And yet God is ultimately accomplishing his purposes. It's all through the pages of scripture. It's all through the pages of scripture. And so don't, I know I'm not going to answer all your questions this morning, but don't just like throw this away as something that's not important. I'll tell you why. But the second thing I want to help us understand this and I'm going to read this one from Don Carson just because I think it's funny. This dude is so smart that you have to have like a, a dictionary to understand what he's talking about. Like God's judicial hardening. That's what he's talking about here. The theologians call it the judicial hardening of God where he does these things. It talks about it in Deuteronomy where he hardened hearts. It talks about it in Exodus. It talks about it in Romans. It talks about it all through the, it talks about it in Second Thessalonians. There's, there's all sorts of places where God like judicially hardens some people. It's talking about it here is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate. <laughs> Amen, right? Like you guys all. <laughs> what that means, because I did look up some of these words, capricious. I thought I knew what it meant, but it meant kind of like just blowing around kind of wherever your emotions like take you. Like God's just not going off and just like flippantly doing things. He's not manipulating people and it's not arbitrary, which means it's like there's no causation or like reason behind it. And potentate, that's the big word, means like some like, like ruler or authoritator or like pope or king or something like that. 
It's like the, this doctrine on the page of the scripture never shows God as like this capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate. <laughs> cursing, now this is important for us, cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do what they themselves have chosen. And this is where we get hung up. Because we like to think that we're morally neutral or even morally pure. And, and there's something in us that says, like, oh, like, it feels like God's condemning me to do what I want to do. Oh, I would do the right thing, right? No, 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 no. Scriptures, the scriptures, like, say that the sin in your heart and the things that move you and the things that drive your decisions are so much more deep and so much more like corrupt and the bondage that you're under as a human apart from Christ is so much more significant than you could even imagine. And that's where we get hung up. Can God like justly condemn us to do what we would do on our own? That's what he's doing with these people. He's justly condemning them. But this idea of God's sovereignty is important for us because without it, and what hope do we have? Like we pray for God to like act in somebody's life that we, that's far from God. Why? Because we believe that God acts to like open people's eyes. We pray because we think he, we pray because we believe he's sovereign, because he's the one that controls all things. We can have hope and confidence in the midst of like crazy times because nothing is out of his control. It's, God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. His love and his justice are intact because he just turns us over to do what we would do on our own. And lastly, all through the pages of scriptures when you see this, when, when you see God act in this way, he's ultimately doing it in a way that moves his redemptive plan forward. And that's what's going on here. He's moving his redemptive plan forward because the purpose of Jesus coming was so that ultimately that he could die in our place. So let me just encourage you here that don't just, again, throw your hands up on this because I think if you press into these things, if you start looking for them in the pages of Scripture, just reread John so far and see how many times John speaks to these things. I think you'll discover that the bondage you are in is so much greater than you ever imagined. The salvation you need in Christ is greater, and the grace and the love that you received is so much fuller than you could ever imagine. And that when you, can, when you begin to grasp those things that these doctrines like reveal to us, I think it'll transform your heart in such a way that you'll respond with greater worship and greater devotion and greater appreciation for the work of Christ. So don't just throw it out, but kind of let it, let it sit on your soul and wrestle with it a little bit. Because God's like grace and his love and his redemptive plan is always moving forward. You know, and at the end of the day, I think it should stir our hearts to great worship because says this in verse 39, for this cause they could, oh no, verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. That quote right up above, the hardened their eyes and blinded their hearts thing, that's a quote from Isaiah 6. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 6. I've got it on the screen. In the, oh, go back to Isaiah 5, sorry, verse 30. This is the verse right before Isaiah 6, 1. 
after five chapters of, discuss, discovering, of discussing how like disobedient the nation of Israel was, Isaiah says this, and if one looks to the land, if you look out over the nation of Israel, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by the clouds. Like, there's this darkness that has settled over the land. Isaiah 6, 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, King Uzziah was a good king, and now this good king dies, and so it even gets darker. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Go on. And above him stood the seraphim, which are these crazy angelic beings that we don't have time for. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah responds, and, well, I guess it keeps going. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Like, these angels are crying out, and the whole place is shaking, and the place is filled with smoke, and the Lord's sitting on his throne. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is saying, you know what? Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ in that moment. What he's saying is like, when, when Isaiah read Isaiah 53, or when he wrote Isaiah 53, he saw the glory of Jesus Christ manifested in him coming as a savior of the world. When he, when he penned the words in Isaiah chapter 6, he saw the glory of Jesus Christ as he sits as on the throne as the sovereign over the whole world. Like Jesus is in charge and he deserves all of our worship. That's one of the things that the doctrine brought John to. Isaiah saw his glory and he spoke of him. But then we have this interesting statement in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. He's like, with all of this like, crazy theological stuff going on, there's still this group of people that we're not really sure what to do with. It says many of the rulers, these were like the Sanhedrin, were believing in Jesus, but then John says, but they really loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So we're not really sure where to categorize them. Are they in or are they out, right? In fact, all through the book of John, we've seen, back in John 2, we saw that these people that believed in Jesus just because of his miracles, like Jesus like, didn't entrust himself to them because it wasn't genuine faith. That's in John chapter 2. A couple of weeks ago when we were at, at the story of Lazarus, we saw Thomas and Mary and Martha, and both of them had like incomplete faith, where Thomas is like, well, I guess we're going to go die with Jesus. But he kept walking with Jesus. Martha was like, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, but if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It was incomplete. And we don't know about these guys. It's incomplete for sure. Maybe it's artificial because it says they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The thing that's going to prove it one way or the other is about, I should have done the math, like five or six days from now when Jesus comes up from the grave like, what are they going to do then? Once the, uh, the story plays out, and once the centrality of the cross becomes evident, once his resurrection and his power over sin and death becomes clear, what do you do with Jesus then? That's what proves your genuineness of your faith. But in this meantime, they're in this place of like, we love the approval of man rather than the approval of God. 
None of us know what that's like, right? Think about those, some application for a minute. Is, and what you see after the resurrection is like Peter and John, they loved the approval of God rather than the approval of man, and they were willing to get beaten and killed for him. Before the resurrection, they were like cowards. Something changed. But what about us? Think about some of the application for us. There's really clear application like today. Apparently, the Pharisees are like were the inventors of, inventors of cancel culture, right? Because look what they said. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the, because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Being put out of the synagogue means you were kicked out of like the religious worship of the nation of Israel. You were ostracized in society. You would be an outsider, an unbeliever, and cast out because you didn't like comply with the Pharisees and their like set of rules of whatever righteousness they defined it as. If you align with Jesus, you'll be ostracized. And we see that happening all the time today. And each of us has to make that decision. Are we going to love the approval of man? Are we going to love the approval of God? Like, whose opinion is most important? You know, when you guys are all at school, wherever you young people are this morning, you're going to be hit with it over and over and over and over again. Like, do you love the approval of man or do you love the approval of God? And it, understand that it's, it's about your love. Not about what you say, not about what you do. It's where your affections are. Are your affections on God and his approval? Are your affections on, like, trying to impress everybody around us? Same, same thing's true when you go to work or when you're talking to your neighbor or when you're, yeah, I guess that covers it all. <laughs> Any interactions you have, right? But that's the easy one. I mean, think about how much this, like, desiring man's approval, like, just crushes us. You know, I, I came up with some C's. So I'm alliterating all the ways we're crushed. You think about compromise. That's what I just talked about. Like, are we as a church going to stand true and we as God's people going to stand true to, to Jesus and his word or not? Then you think about, like, comparison. Oh, I've got to do, I have this entire list of things that I have to do so that I can prove my validity before all of you all. Right? I've got to have the Instagram-worthy home. I've got to preach like good and engaging messages. I have, to, um, I have to have my kids be able to recite the Apostles' Creed when they're 18 months old. I have to. <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but like how true is that? Like, my kids have to be the best soccer players, the best piano players, the best like dancers, the best like and we just put ourselves on this treadmill of like comparison and, and we're just crushing ourselves under this weight of human opinion. Let me just break it to you. You will never be able to live up to man's opinion. It'll always be this never-ending treadmill. And until we stop and just say, I'm going to get off of it, like we just keep crushing ourselves. Like you ladies who are, and, and men who are like, Oh, I'm going to pursue my identity and my jobs. And then I also knew I have to be this great per perfect dad and perfect mom. And I have to also be this perfect church member. And I have to do all these things. And I've just got, are you guys tired yet? Like, <laughs> it's this never-ending treadmill that we place ourselves on. Think about it. What's required 
for the approval of God. If you love the approval of God, what does Jesus say even in this text? It's one thing, believe. Believe and you'll become sons of light. You'll be adopted in the father, to the Father. So then when people like compare, or the other C I, I forgot was criticize, and we're crushed because of like their criticism. We can, we can rest in the reality that we're fully accepted in Jesus Christ and we can hear what people tell us without being crushed. We can like try to live this life out of that place of resting in the grace that we receive from God. But I have to be honest with you, like some of you are gonna make some hard, need to make some hard decisions. If you're gonna start living for the approval of God, resting in the work that he's accomplished for you in Jesus Christ and get off the treadmill of the, everything this world has that's just keeping the, like grinding you up and crushing you into the ground. Like you, you're going to need to make some decisions because you can't serve both. You can't serve both. You know, and even like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's never ending, both from within Christendom and from without. You just think about all the things, like as a good Christian, like mom or dad, like all the things you have to do. I'm not saying, like, just be lazy parents, right? Like, I'm not saying that, but man, maybe, maybe a lot of the expectations you put on yourselves are more, more about man's approval than God's. It's interesting what happens here next, though. Is that Verse 43, if you, if you kind of look through the story here, you could have just ended the chapter at verse 43. Because look what happens in verse 36. 36, the last half, Jesus, Jesus gets, goes off the stage. The narrator begins to read. This is why all these things happen. This is the behind the scenes. They love the approval of man rather than the approval of God. Drop the curtain. The scene's over. But John doesn't do that. He does something interesting. He brings Jesus back out of chronological order because Jesus is in hiding now. That's what we saw in verse 36. And all of a sudden, verse 44, Jesus cried out. He cried out and said, he's like shouting out with a loud voice. Who's he crying out to? I think it's, I think it's the, I think this is what's going on. Like maybe I'm, you can like talk to Jake and Randy about it if you think I'm wrong. The lights went off, Jesus is off stage, and all of a sudden he comes back on stage, the spotlight comes onto him, and he cries out with a loud voice. His audience isn't anybody in the storyline there. His audience is the reader. His audience is all of us. He's crying out with a loud voice authoritatively, making a declaration and saying this. He who believes in me does not believe in me, or him who, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me or sees me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, and everyone who believes in me, that everyone who believes in me, may not remain in darkness. He says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, it's like I'm there as like the shining beacon of a torch in this dark world. And if you see me, you see the Father. If you, if you like, what was the first thing that he said? If you believe in me, you're believing in God, 
Let me just be clear about something here. There's a lot of people, and there's probably a lot of you in this room that have like this vague sort of like, I believe in God, so I must be okay. I believe in God, and I'm, I'm American, so of course I'm okay. No, like Muslims believe in God, Jews believe in God, and like the devil believes in God. Unless you behold Jesus Christ for who he really is and see and believe in him, like your worship of God is false. Unless you make sense of that, that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for you, like you don't believe in the sense that Jesus is talking about it here. He's speaking to us. These things are too important to let go. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I don't judge him. Oh, because Jesus isn't, you know, whatever, no. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word that I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. He's like, I don't need to judge you. This book will judge you. The words that I've spoken will judge you. What you do with me and with my like substitutional sacrifice on the cross is what will make all the difference. We need to believe Jesus and believe his word. And if you don't, like you still remain under judgment and you still remain in darkness. It's belief that moves you out of it. So Brian, why don't you come up so you can close this? But like my challenge to, I guess to all of us, again, wherever you are, we need to ask ourselves that question, like, what am I really living for? Have I really come to grips with the centrality of Jesus' work on the cross? Am I really, like, pursuing him, or am I just living for the approval of the world around me? Jesus says this back in John. This is out of order in my notes, so I skipped it. John 5. Do you have it, Jen? Because there it is. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Jesus is saying one of the biggest obstacles to genuine faith and to like living the life of faith and seeing like the, the truth of the gospel pressed into all those areas of your life is, is living for the glory or the approval. It's the same word of the people all around you. And at the end of the day, we need to cling to Jesus Christ and his work. We need to cling to his word. We need to ask God to like teach us what that is. Ephesians 5 says this, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Like, that should be the posture of our hearts. That We want to receive God's approval. We want to like walk in the light. We want to live as if we are, because we are children of light. We need to give up on the darkness, give up on man's approval that we'll never earn, and just rest in what God's done for us, and out of love, pursue him. So Brian, why don't you close us? Then I'll close us in prayer.